1: We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the
2: journey. This vaccine will help us get past this pandemic once and for all.
0: We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure.
1: Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing.
0: Good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepker. Well, Roger, there are more reports today of Boris Johnson clashing with the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, about spending plans that will cost billions of pounds. It's been reported that the Treasury is considering whether to scrap the pensions triple lock, a commitment that would give pensioners a 6% increase at a time when younger people in the workforce are being squeezed. It also says that Sunak has refused to fund Boris Johnson's 200 million Project to build a new royal yacht.
1: Well, tensions are likely to build next week when the Health Secretary Matt Hancock is seeking £5 billion a year to pay for social care. CNAC's worried the plans don't have sufficient funding and doesn't want to increase taxes on families to pay for it.
0: Well, joining us now is Bim Afalami, who is Conservative MP for Hitchin and Harpenden. Bim, welcome back to the programme. Thank you so much for being with us. So on this first big story today, the Prime Minister wanting to spend, spend, and Sunak sounding more cautious, it seems. Is there a split over funding here in the Tory party?
3: There are always... Uh, debates with the government and the party about spending. I don't think that's going to be news to anybody listening. Indeed, it won't be news to you. And, of course, the Chancellor, quite rightly, is always cautious about spending public money. Um, but I have learnt um, not to take newspaper reports, you know, too seriously when it comes to this sort of thing, because these, these discussions are held behind closed doors. Where we will see the outcome of these discussions is in the spending review in the autumn.
1: Yeah, but, Bim, you know that when when releases are put out like that to papers over the weekend, clearly someone was briefing, maybe several people were briefing. That does suggest something is going on more than the normal, and in this case, it does seem to be Boris Johnson promising, making loads and loads and loads of promises, and not checking whether or not he's got the money to do it.
3: Well, whether you have the money to do something or not is not a fixed thing, it's something that changes depending on the situation, depending on how the economy improves, depending on how we do with Covid as we come out of this next phase and so lots of other variables. It is you will fully appreciate that there is always a debate, a very active and strong and vigorous debate within government over what the priorities are, what should be funded, what shouldn't, how money can get raised, etc. This is not unusual. And I do think that what we have to do is take a slightly more mature look at this and say, look, let's think over the next few months, indeed years, what are the priorities for the country? How should we fund those? How do we get growth up to make sure that we can pay for the things we need to do? Not so much focus on, you know, what particular one person may have told to one journalist over the weekend.
0: No, understood. OK, so look, the, the goalposts are moving. This is the start of the debate, though, as you point out, ahead of the autumn spending review. That's what it's all building up to. So on the serious issue, the pensions lock, a major pillar um, for the Conservative Party, one that appeals to voters. Is this an area where the Chancellor sees savings? Is that likely you know, t- to be um, the sacrifice in order to have money to spend on other areas of the economy? I mean, this is going to go down. Like a lead balloon amongst Tory voters.
3: Well, I've been in Parliament just over four years, and I have seen at uh, numerous times people from the, uh, you know, from within government, particularly maybe parts of the Treasury, who seem to uh, talk about pensions tax relief as something that should be changed or done in order to raise money. This is not new or unusual. Uh, and again, I'm pretty sure that there are advisors Within the Treasury, putting that to the Chancellor. Indeed, they'll put to him lots of other things. Uh, I think the key question, in the political terms, is: is is this something that the government, you know, feels is sufficiently uh, needed um, to do it? Uh, and I suppose we'll find out once we understand the extent of the extra spending that we may need. Uh, but I, I'm not one of those that say we shouldn't consider, you know, this. We should we should look at everything. I think that's what a good Chancellor should do.
1: But what would you, you, you say? You wouldn't be one who says don't consider it. Would you be one who supports ending the triple lock if that's what's needed to pay the bills?
3: Well, but there's never just one thing that's needed to pay the bills. There are always choices. So the question is really one around what the other choices are. And that's something that I'm not fully cited on. What I do know is that it will be a very, very big decision for the government to take and it would need to be set out and explained incredibly carefully with the public.
0: Is the Chesham and Amersham by-election, the win by Liberal Democrat a candidate, a wake-up call then to Tories that they can lose votes in the South by focusing too much on the Blue Wall in the North needs of of, of those constituents in the North of England?
3: Well, look, Chesham and Amersham is, is only, you know, seven or eight miles from my own seat. I was there mm. a lot in the campaign uh, and it is definitely a wake-up call uh, to the party that we cannot take anybody's vote for granted. I, you know, and, and I don't think we have been, but I think we haven't clearly been communicating enough to certain voters because people said, oh, well, you know, you're know, you going to win here anyway, and maybe it doesn't matter, and maybe you've taken me for granted, and you haven't been campaigning enough over the last few years. And these are things we need to make sure that nobody says again. So I do think it's been a wake-up call that we are going to have to refocus, not just in political terms, but in policy terms, uh, with these voters, definitely.
1: Okay, so refocusing in policy terms. Get rid of HS2, perhaps? Uh, rethink a lot of the issues to do with the planning controls? Is that what you need to do?
3: Uh, HS2, I think, is is committed and the building's already done. So, sorry, not done. It, it's being done. Uh, I don't think that, um, you know, that could be cancelled, nor should it be. I think in terms of the planning reforms, there is a real difficulty because I think there are a lot of people who think certain things are in the planning reforms that aren't there. So, for example, you had uh, the Liberal Democrats say, oh, it will remove local communities' ability to determine planning in their areas. That is precisely not the case. They also said it will concrete over the whole Chiltern. That is not the case. Indeed, we're creating a Chiltern's National Park. You know, so I think that people's view of the planning reforms is is, is a real problem. What we have to do as we come forward with them, hopefully soon in the coming weeks and months, is to set out what is actually in the bill, how it's going to improve people's lives, how it's going to build more houses, but specifically make sure that they're high quality and good looking, beautiful houses that people actually want to live in. Because that's a big problem with planning is that people perceive that some of the planning over the last 10, 20, 30 years hasn't been done very well. And I, I share that concern myself. Uh, and so they're concerned about planning in the future. It's our job to make sure that we turn you know NIMBYs into YIMBYs. Uh, and if we can't do that, Then not only is that a political problem, but that's a problem for the country because people listening to this will often, uh, indeed, if they're not themselves trying to get on the housing ladder, they will will have sons or or, or daughters or grandchildren who themselves find it difficult. And it's not a sustainable Mm. situation for the country for us to say, well, you know, people don't want any housing, so we're not going to build any. That is not a sustainable situation. A responsible government has to do it, but we have to do it in the right way.
0: Yeah, but no government's cracked that for thirty years, and the result is massively, rapidly rising house prices in the UK, or at least the trend of that. Um, but look, let's let's leave the planning issues just for one side for a moment. Bim, have you booked a summer holiday abroad?
3: Um, well, I did, though I I did um, book it with um with it was refundable. Put it that way.
0: Hmm.
1: You can see the problem. If 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 senior conservatives, uh, prominent figures like yourself, ministers are seen on the beaches this year, that isn't going to go down well with with the voters in Cheshire, or Amersham or anywhere else.
3: No, but to be honest, I think it's a more fundamental problem, uh, which is this is a really fast-moving, changing crisis. There's, you know, we haven't had a pandemic like this for for several decades. Uh, it is my view that we do need to make sure travel um, is open but we need to do that at the right time and we need to desperately try not just vaccinate our own country but particularly in developing countries and countries around the world because on some level we won't really deal with travel until enough Mm -hmm. of the world is vaccinated and so that's why i've been putting pressure on my colleagues to make sure we get our. We give as many vaccines as we can to the developing world and help partners across the world do that, because that way we can restore travel in an unrestricted way, which is what we all want to see.
0: Yeah, um, but you can't have it both ways. Um, I mean, we're not actually sending jabs abroad as far as I know, are we? And also travel is essentially closed. So it's not happening now. It's months in the future, really, if if it does happen isn't it i mean travel and tourism airline jobs desperate for the sector to be reopened but it's not
3: yeah they are uh, and i've got you know family member who runs a travel business and i know the difficulty that he's had you know over the last year or so and so you know i i achingly want travel to to come back and indeed i know that the prime minister wants that as well and i think that the question is just how can we do that in a safe way uh And I think the key to that is to get the vaccination schedules, not just in this country, but across Europe and the world, happening as fast as possible. And that's what the focus is.
1: But a lot of what would happen in terms of confidence in this would be if the public saw, if business saw the kind of scientific advice the government's getting, if it was all open, then people would be a lot more confident. I think the airlines want us suing to get exactly that right at the moment.
3: But that they, that they they don't know the advice the government gets? They aren't
1: seeing the advice. The advice isn't open. The advice is interpreted.
3: Well, to be honest, we have more open data around case rates, the vaccination rates uh, in most countries. I think that that's really the key. They're the key stats. Uh, in terms of the advice the government gets, the government gets a whole range of advice. The important thing is what's happening to the disease and how how much can we be sure that when people go abroad, they don't somehow import the disease in a way that evades or partially evades the vaccines that we've that we've created that is really the key exam question All and right. that's an exam question that the government's trying to take every single day
1: yeah okay exam questions interesting thing at this time of year uh normally bim thanks very much bim afalami their conservative mp for hitchin and Harpenden. Now we heard a lot of talk about global Britain at the G7 summit earlier this month, and the trade agreements with Australia and Japan have been heralded by the government as signs of the way the UK can forge a post-Brexit commercial relationship with the rest of the world. But in fact, those agreements represent a tiny fraction of the country's trade, so... Where are we in the process of forging Britain's trade links? Well, I'm very pleased to say that joining us now is Professor Michael Gassiorek, who is Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex. Michael, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. I mean, first of all, the Australian deal, that's before that, the Japanese deal. How important are they for the UK?
2: The deals themselves economically are not particularly important. Um, the, the UK government's own estimates suggest that the Australia deal may increase UK GDP, you know, the level of economic activity, by two percent That's a tiny number. So, in and of themselves, the deals are not very important economically. And the impact of the UK-Japan deal was also fairly small. It was larger than that, but it was also fairly small. I think the deals are primarily have a political significance, it's for the UK government to show that it is capable of negotiating and signing new free trade agreements. I should caveat that statement very slightly by saying that the deal with Japan was not really a new free trade agreement. It was largely rolling over what we had before when the UK was a member of the EU. In contrast, the deal with Australia is a genuinely new agreement um, in that sense But it's only an agreement in principle. We don't yet have a free trade agreement with Australia, despite the pronouncements that were being made last week. What we have is an agreement that we're going to sign a free trade agreement, and we've got the broad outlines of that agreement. But there is no agreement in place yet.
0: No, absolutely. And these trade deals can take five, ten years often to actually make. Where do we stand now, then, in terms of trade arrangements in contrast to where we stood inside the EU? I did read, for example, that we would need 20 Australia deals simply to make up uh, some of the trade that we were doing with the EU.
2: Oh, I haven't done the maths on that, but I suspect it's more than Yeah. Uh, most estimates of the impact of leaving the EU have a kind of, at a bottom range, a negative impact on UK GDP of about 4%. And if a Australia deal has a negative, has a positive effect of 0.02%, it's a tiny fraction of that. And I think that's... A, You know, it's a very good question that you've just posed, and I think it's the right way to think about it. Although we are signing new deals, and there'll probably be a deal with New Zealand coming up, and we're renegotiating with Canada, in comparison to what we've lost as a result of leaving the EU, those deals are not going to compensate for that remotely. And that's why these decisions that we're making are not really about the economics, they're really about the politics.
1: Well, you talk about what we've lost. Is there a sense that rather than lost, it's just different? And at the moment, we are obviously trading with the EU, but in more difficult ways. I mean, Ben Fletcher of Make UK, which represents manufacturers across the UK, said the problems weren't teething troubles, but endemic now. So is this really just what we've got to expect? He called it Dante's fifth circle of hell for importers and
2: exporters. But is it just the new normal? Yes, it is a new normal. I mean, it, there will be an adjustment period. I mean, the early evidence suggests that trade with the EU, in comparison to trade with the non-EU countries, is somewhere between twenty to thirty percent lower in the first quarter of this year. Um, And therefore, that trade has really declined as a result of leaving the EU, as opposed to, for example, as a result of Covid. Some of that is no doubt teething troubles and firms will adjust to that. Some of that is exactly, as you say, the new normal. But it is precisely that negative impact on trade, which is hitting some sectors particularly hard, such as agro food, such as textiles and so on, which will have long run implications for those industries and for supply chains in those industries.
0: Can Britain pivot uh, what are the prospects, for example, for of a deal with the U.S.? Uh, and if so, when might that come? That was sort of one of the hopes um, of warmer relations between Boris Johnson and the U.S. President Joe Biden.
2: Yes, I think the big prize for the U.K. would be if it could sign a free trade agreement with the U.S. Personally, I think that's fairly unlikely, at least in in, in the near future, I think. Negotiating with the U.S. will take a long time. I think the deal will be a difficult deal to strike. And although relations between the UK and the U.S. are clearly improving, we've got the easing of the various sort of trade disputes—be this to do with steel, Boeing, Airbus, or the digital services tax—that's a long way from signing a free trade agreement. The UK would love to sign a free trade agreement with the U.S. It would really be a strong statement of its of global Britain. And it's sort of newfound sovereignty in trade policy but frankly I think that's fairly unlikely in the near future. So Michael during
1: what might come out of all this uh, in, the, in the essence of having to get the trade deals we can is there a sense that we're accepting lower standards potentially undermining homegrown industries and this is just an inevitable price of being outside the EU not being a massive trade bloc and having to do these deals?
2: To some extent yes I suspect that is the case. Again, politically, there's a lot of pressure on the UK government uh, domestically to show that it can sign new trade deals. Therefore, it is in a weaker bargaining position. Quite what it therefore gives away in those deals is as yet a little bit unclear. As I say, all the existing deals are actually rollover deals. So it's just transitioning what we had before. The deal with Australia is indeed a new deal, but we don't yet know Um, what's in the detail. And as always, the devil is in the detail. So yes, there is some liberalisation of agricultural imports that probably will affect uh, British beef farmers to some extent. But on the other hand, the transition period appears to be quite long. There are safeguard measures in place. So I'm not sure it will be that disastrous, for example, for uh, the British beef industry, um, British beef producers.
0: Yeah, Um, And farmers, yes, who have been very important voices in the um, kind of lead up to um, the kind of initial agreement with Australia. Look, does this end up pushing the UK um, even more towards being a services-based rather than manufacturing-based economy? I mean, I hate to sort of say Singapore on Thames, but that that has been one phrase, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, I don't think it'll be Singapore on Thames. I think there is... There has been a long-term structural shift towards services in the UK economy. Um, I suspect this will be partially accelerated. To some extent, that will depend on future, uh, future relations with the EU and how they settle down over the next sort of year to five years. At the moment, there's clearly a lot of tension in particular also over Northern Ireland. If that continues, if that impacts strongly on manufacturing supply chains, that may have a longer run impact on manufacturing in the UK, on big industries, for example, such as uh, cars or pharmaceuticals.
1: No, you touched on Northern Ireland there, Michael. I'd like to end just asking a little bit about that because clearly that is a massive issue. Interesting reporting over the weekend suggesting that trade between Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic is increasing dramatically just because it's easier. Um, Do you see that as a kind of longer-term trend?
2: Yes, I think it probably is. Again, it depends on partly how the Northern Ireland protocol pans out, but there's been lots of both sort of quite formal evidence, but also casual empirical evidence that firms are shifting their supply chains. Firms in particularly in Northern Ireland and Ireland, where it's easier to buy from each other than it is to buy from GB. And part of the reason for that is uncertainty. So they're part of the reason of the increased cost between GB and NI, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, part of it is the uncertainty that firms are facing. They'd rather go and buy from suppliers or sell to suppliers where it is more certain. So the sooner we can resolve all those uncertainties which still exist about the Northern Ireland Protocol, the quicker we'll see what those long-run impacts will be. To some extent, yes, I think this is a long-term shift.
0: Okay. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Professor Michael Gasiorek is Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex there, walking us through well, where Britain's trading policy is right now.
1: Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
3: What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move.